everyone. My name is Joseph. I'm one of the pastors here at Deer Creek. Thanks for worshiping with us today. Hope you're having a great weekend so far. I thought we would start our time of teaching, our time of study together with a question and maybe a little bit of a confession. So the question is this, who here was a troublemaker when you were a kid? Raise your hand. That is a lot of hands. <laughs> I, I thought as much. I had my suspicions. I think we attract a certain type here at Deer Creek. Yeah. Well, if you raise your hand, you are in good company or, or bad company, kind of depending on how you think about it, because I also was a troublemaker when I was a kid. My parents described me as having selective obedience. Can any of you relate to that? Yeah, I was really good at following the rules when it was exactly uh, already what I was planning to do in the first place, right? Some of you can relate to that. I, uh, however, when the rules or what my parents wanted me to do, uh, when that didn't fit with what I had in store, what I wanted and was planning, well, then I would deviate. I would start to plan. I would start to scheme. I would try and sneak one past my parents, try to come up with a way to get my way uh, when the, without them finding out. Now, one of my all-time favorite schemes was when I was six years old. It was one that uh, happened on Halloween. And the reason I had to come up with a scheme wasn't my own fault. It was my parents' fault. It was all their fault because they were so unjust. See, every single Halloween, the same thing happened year after year. I get dressed up as a kid. I look adorable. And then I go house to house to house, and I collect all this candy. I get all of this loot. And I come back to our living room floor, and I would dump out pounds of candy on the ground, start sifting through all this, you know, think about eating all of it. And then my parents very unfairly would take it all away at the end of the night. And they'd give me a couple pieces, and they'd give me some speech about, you can't have two pounds of candy before bed, Joseph. You'll get sick. Some garbage like that they would feed me. <sighs> and so I started to ask the question, how in the world do I get that candy from my living room floor on Halloween into my belly that night? So I concocted a scheme. Now, like any good scheme, you need a couple of things. I knew uh, I would need a disguise for my scheme, and so I chose this. The bumblebee, the bumblebee as my disguise, because uh, many of you are thinking, you know, what about, why not skeleton, zombie mummy, something like that, and that's, quite honestly, that's a rookie mistake. It's too suspicious. It's too threatening. No one suspects a bumblebee to be up to no good. No one. It's benign. It's innocent. And so I had my disguise. I was ready to go. I also knew any good scheme needs an accomplice, so I thought really long and hard about this. I knew loyalty was paramount, so I chose my accomplice. That is my teddy bear. That is my Winnie the Pooh teddy bear. I'd had him. He'd been with me since I was born. He was loyal. I appreciated that about a teddy bear. Strong, silent type. I knew he had the gumption to get the job done. All right, so I had my scheme. I had my, dis oops, had my disguise. Oh, Jenny, I think, uh, I think we dropped back a few slides there. That's perfect. Thank you. So I had my disguise. I had my accomplice, and I was ready to go. And so that morning, I put my plan into motion, and when my parents weren't watching, I took a pair of scissors, and I proceeded to cut a hole in Winnie the Pooh's neck and pulled out all of his stuffing. Don't feel too bad for him. He knew what he was getting himself into, all right? He knew to put the mission first, and sometimes that takes sacrifice. Yeah, it's, it's a little disturbing, but I pulled out all of this stuffing until there's nothing left but this cloth outer shell of my poor teddy bear. And I hid him inside my Halloween basket. So that night I go out, I dress up, I look adorable. I go house to house to house and get all of this candy, this huge haul of candy. And I come back to my living room floor and I do what I usually do and I dump it out. But when my parents aren't looking, I do something different. And I take handfuls of candy and I proceed to stuff Winnie the Pooh full of candy. I turned him into a teddy bear smuggling compartment. Now, I don't know if he would have gotten past TSA, right? Because he looked really disfigured by the end of this. He's lumpy, and there's like lollipop sticks like poking out of him. He's really misshapen and disfigured. But I got him past my parents. 
And I get to my bedroom, and the lights go out, and I dump Winnie the Pooh, this poor teddy bear, out on the bed, and all this candy comes out. And I proceed to gorge myself on about a pound to a pound and a half of candy. Just filled my, and I'm toasting myself. I'm a master criminal now. I've gotten away with it. I, you know, Winnie the Pooh, thanks for taking one for the team, buddy. You know, we're in this together. And I think I've gotten away with it. I think it's the perfect crime. I think my scheme has, has succeeded until the next morning. And the next morning, my parents come in to get me, and I haven't gotten out of bed yet. And they walk in, and I am sick as a dog. I am laying there in bed. I'm like bright green. There's chocolate just smeared across my face. There's wrappers all over the bed. Winnie the Pooh's laying in the bed next to me. He looks like he's been melted, right? He's completely empty now. And I'm holding my stomach. I'm dehydrated. Because it turns out you probably shouldn't have about a pound and a half of candy before you go to bed as a six-year-old. Probably not as an adult either. It's not a great idea. And I was busted. And I was caught in my scheme. And I thought I'd gotten away with it. But I got found out. And there were consequences. Isn't that the worst? Don't you hate getting caught, getting found out? You put so much time and energy into concocting this scheme. You thought you were going to get away with it, but then you get found out. And all of a sudden, you're vulnerable, and you're exposed, and there's consequences. And it brings up all this stuff, all this junk in us, right, to get caught. You know, depending on what we did, if it's a one-time, you know, maybe we feel a little embarrassed. There's consequences for our actions. But if there's a series of things that we've done, if it's more serious what we've done, well, all of a sudden, we, we, we're not just embarrassed, we're a little ashamed. We know that we've made a huge mess. We know that we've, we've broken trust. We know that we've done things that maybe we ought not to have done. And so we start asking the question, how in the world did I get here, and how in the world do I get back? I feel so guilty. I feel so ashamed. Now, we've been in the middle of a teaching series this summer titled Summer in the Psalms. And so week one, we took a look at Psalm chapter one. It's a psalm of orientation. A psalm that gives us direction, gives us motivation, gives us guidance for living a blessed, meaningful life with God. A psalm of orientation. And last week, we got to take a look at Psalm chapter 13. It's a psalm of disorientation, right? Because life could be disorienting. There are times in our lives where circumstances feel like they're spiraling out of control, and it leads us to ask big and tough questions of God, right? God, are you there? God, do you even care? And we talked about what does it look like to trust God in the midst of those difficult circumstances, especially in the midst of those difficult circumstances, psalm of disorientation. Well, this week we're going to look at a third type of psalm. We're going to look at a psalm of reorientation, a psalm that answers that question, when we have messed up, when we have broken relationship, when we've been caught and found out, how do we turn back towards God? So we're going to be looking at Psalm chapter 51 this morning. It's a psalm written by David. Uh, he wrote our psalm we looked at last week, Psalm 13. We're going to be looking at Psalm 51 eventually. And I say eventually just because Psalm 51 is a psalm about David's response to getting caught. And we don't, it's, I don't know if you've ever walked in on a movie halfway through. It's very easy to feel lost, feel confused. You, you might pick up some of the major themes, but you know inevitably, invariably, you're, you're kind of missing out on something. So we're going to step back for a second. We're going to establish a little bit of context, a little bit of a foundation for this psalm before we dive in. Now for us to do that, we have to take a look at a word that we really don't like to talk about in the church. This is a word that makes us really uncomfortable even in our culture around us, and that word is sin. Oh, that evokes something in that word sin, right? Some of us, oh, I think of judgment, I think of condemnation, I think of people pointing fingers and saying all the ways that I've messed up and fallen short sin. And I'm from the South, right? Because it, it was never the word sin, it was sinna, right? We always put an A there on the end, sinna in your life. That's what we do in the South. And oh man, that word just, it, it evokes this thing in us. It makes us so uncomfortable. And here's the deal. 
I, I want to suggest to us this morning that every single person here has a philosophy of sin. Right? Whether we use that word or not, whether we talk about that word or not, whether we acknowledge that, that particular word, even if we like that word or not, every single one of us has a philosophy of sin. Actually, I would say every single belief system, every single faith system on the planet has a philosophy of sin. Right? It doesn't matter if you're Christian or Muslim, Buddhist, Hindu, you could be an agnostic, an atheist, you could be a Jedi, right? You could believe anything on that spectrum. And there is some sense of sin. And this, the common thread that connects every single faith system, and I believe every single person here in this room today, is this. When we look at the world, we easily recognize that there, there are things that simply are not as they should be. Every single faith system recognizes that. Every single belief system looks at the world and says there are things out there that are not as they should be. I think if we dig into that, we look at wars, we look at bigotry, racism, poverty, and we say, yeah, that's not right. No one looks at a tornado hitting a small town or a hurricane striking because says, that's, yeah, that figures. That's about, that's par for the course. No, there's something visceral in us that reacts to that's not right. We look at wars, we look at terrible things that happen. That's not right. But it's not just way out there, is it? If we look even right in here, our families, our workplaces, our friendships, our enemies, the fact that we maybe have enemies, people that we don't like, don't get along with. It's very easy for us to recognize that there are things that simply are not as they should be in our families, in our social circles, in our jobs. And if we really are honest, we peel back the curtain. I think every single one of us, when we wake up in the morning and look in the mirror, we say, there there are things that really are not as they should be about me, about who I am, about the choices and decisions I have made or will make. There's something not right. Now, I'm going to give us a really simple definition of sin. Again, whether you like that word or not, I think this is a helpful way to kind of bring us all together of this. And this uh, definition is this. is that sin equals broken relationship. I love this definition because I do think it kind of casts a net really wide for us as we think about what sin is. Because we look at the world, are there broken relationships in the world? Of course. War, poverty, all the things I mentioned. Are there broken relationships in our families and our workplaces? Yes. I would, I would uh, be quite confused if someone said they didn't see or hadn't experienced at some point or another in their jobs, schools, life, marriage, some sense of a broken relationship. And I would say there's actually broken relationships right here with us, the way we treat ourselves, the way we speak to ourselves, and the way we live out our lives. And all of that, I would say, points to a broken relationship with our Creator. That sin has entered in this world, and there's a broken relationship. There are things actually that are not as they should be in the way I relate to God, my Maker, my Father the one who loves me and cares for me and provides for me. There's broken relationship all around us. Now, that's the common thread, right? There's a common thread of sin that we say, okay, there's things that are not as they should be. We can say there's probably broken relationships in the world, in our families, maybe even our life, our relationship with God. How do we respond to sin? Well, there's differences for us in how we do that. There are different ways that we respond to sin. And I would say, I would posit to you this morning, that the difference between how we respond to sin is the difference between life and death. It is a huge, significant difference. So how do we respond to sin? Well, typically, I think there are four ways that we can respond to sin. There are four ways I think are very common for each of us. The first is this, four ways we respond to sin. We hide it. Right? I don't know if you've ever been in the supermarket you see someone that you just don't get along with, someone maybe you gossiped about or someone who gossiped about you and you just, uh, I'm not making eye contact with them. Some of you maybe did that in the church lobby this morning. We hide it. We like to sweep things under the rug. Oh, you know, I had a fight with my spouse. They said this really hurtful thing. Or, you know what, maybe I said this hurtful thing to them. 
let's just brush past it. Let's move on. I don't want to deal with it. It's too stressful. It's too anxiety-producing. Let's move on. And so we respond to sin by sweeping it under the rug. We hide it. We ignore it. We pretend like it's not there. That's one way we respond to sin. Second way is this. We rationalize it. Look, okay. All right, Joseph. Maybe there's a broken relationships in the world. Maybe I've done some things that I shouldn't have done. But come on, I'm not Hitler, right? Like, I'm not going around killing people. I'm not walking down the street kicking puppies left and right. I'm not a bad person. Yeah, maybe I do bad things occasionally. But by comparison, I mean, look at these people over here. Have you met Dwayne? By comparison to Dwayne, look, I'm not that bad a person. I get to take shots at him while he's on vacation. Uh, we rationalize sin. We make comparisons with others and we say, you know what? Yeah, okay, maybe I've done bad things, but come on, what's the harm? It only affects me. It's, only, uh, it's, not, it's nowhere near as bad as what these other people are doing. Third way we respond to sin is this. We blame others. Mm. We point fingers. Yeah, maybe I have some bad habits. Maybe I lash out at people, but you don't know me. You don't know what I've been through. You don't know what my parents did to me or, or didn't do for me. You don't know what my social situation is. You don't know what my finances look like. So yeah, maybe I, I kind of blow up sometimes. Maybe I have a temper. Yeah, maybe I tell some lies, but you don't know what I've been through. In fact, it's this other person who put me there. It's this other person who led me down this path. It's this wrong crowd that I got associated with. If only it wasn't for them, then I wouldn't have sinned. And we blame others. Any of this ringing true for any of you? Boy, it rings true for me. If there's a resonance that you feel with this, it's, there's a reason. Because we see this exact, the, all three of these happen in the first three pages of the Bible. Right? We see this right out of the gate. When Adam and Eve, our first parents, sinned, when they defied God, when they rebelled against him, we see them hide. We see them rationalize. How bad could it really be? We see them point fingers and blame each other. Right? God confronts Adam and says, Adam, what, what happened? And well, God, it's not my fault. It's the woman's fault that you gave me. So, you know, in one sentence, he just blamed the only other two people really in existence. And then God says, Eve, what happened? Well, snake, the snake's fault. The snake tempted me. And God, you made the snake. So I don't know. You need to get your house in order. And we point fingers and we blame others. We see our first parents do this. Y'all, we do this too. We do this too. We hide, we rationalize, we blame others. But there's a fourth way, a much healthier way, I think, that we can respond to sin. And it's another word that I know, it, 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 it's, uh, it's an uncomfortable word. It's one that our culture really doesn't like. It evokes a lot of negative emotions, but that's a shame because it, I think it is one of the most beautiful, one of the most holy, one of the most God-honoring gifts of a word that God has ever spoken into existence. And there's a fourth way that we can respond. As we repent. We repent when we sin. Now I'm from the South. Again, when you sin, nah, you need to repent, nah. And I, I feel that I feel that word. I'm like, oh, I don't like that word. I grew up really hating that word because when I hear repent, I think, you know, creepy guys standing on street corners with huge beards holding signs, condemnation and judgment. And I feel the weight of that word. Repent is actually a beautiful, holy word that's really been hijacked by our culture. We've made repentance into a, this caricature of really what it is. I don't know if y'all have ever been to a county fair or maybe... Uh, uh, circus, and they've drawn caricatures, right? You know, these cartoon figures of yourself. Mine always, they always make me bald, which I always I'm like, what? I don't look like. <laughs> yeah. And uh, they, they, these caricatures are kind of this joke version, this fictitious joke version of this word. And that's what we've made repentance. 
Now, in the same way that I'm going to give you, I gave you a really simple definition of sin is broken relationships. I want to give you a very simple definition of the word repent. And repent just means this. Repentance is turning towards God. This actually comes from, I've taken this from the Hebrew. Uh, the Hebrew word for repent is shuv. just means to turn. And so the Torah, God's law, was the way, and you're walking on the way, but it, they recognize, just like we recognize today, that sin is real, relationships break, and we get off course. And so when you got off course, you needed to, to turn. You needed to turn away from the thing that led you astray and turn back towards God to reorient yourself in relationship with him. Repentance is a turning towards God. And I want us to recapture the beauty and the hope that we find in this world, that we even have the capacity and the ability to return to God, that he loves us and he accepts us and greets us with open arms and unfailing love when we return to him. So we're going to look at the life of a guy named David. We talked about David last week, famous guy. Some of you have probably heard of him. David and Goliath, right? Yeah, that's a pretty impressive story. David was a king of Israel. Now, David also had this title. We talked about this last week. David was a man after, yeah, God's own heart. You said it with such enthusiasm, too. I love it. Yeah, God's own heart. Yeah, man after God's own heart. And I, as I've reflected on that title, and I've reflected on the things that David did in his life and didn't do, I don't believe that David was a man after God's own heart because of his incredible victories. I don't think he was a man after God's own heart because he always followed the rules and did things the right way. Nor do I think he was a man after God's own heart because he avoided all kinds of bad stuff. Because, boy, David did some bad stuff. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. David did some actually really despicable things. Which Actually, when you compare him with the king that came before him, Saul, or even some of the kings his descendants came after, you could easily make the argument that what David did, by our standards, way worse. Way worse than the other kings of Israel. Way more abusive, way more destructive. But he was a man after God's own heart. And I wholeheartedly believe that he was a man after God's own heart because of this word, because of repentance. Because David knew how to turn towards God even when he failed, especially when he failed. And so I'm going to give us a little bit of background and then we're going to dive into Psalm 51. Uh, I I wish we had a little bit more time to dig into this. It's it's a really incredible story. It's a humbling story. Uh, it's, It's one that as I read, that I see elements of myself and the way I live and treat others. But you find the story of David and his struggle with sin in 2 Samuel chapter 11, 2 Samuel chapter 12. And it basically begins this way. Is that uh, Scripture tells us there's actually a great time in David's reign. He was doing really well for himself. His kingdom was established. He's, he's a strong, powerful, authoritative king. And things are going well, but there's enemies all around the kingdom. And so Scripture says that in the time when kings go off to war, David, he stayed home. That's curious. That jumps right off the page. Wait, why did he stay behind? We, we don't know exactly, but very, very likely, David was really comfortable in his palace. He was really comfortable in his luxury. And so he was actually very comfortable with this idea that others would go off and fight and bleed and risk their lives and die on his behalf and on behalf of his kingdom. But he stayed behind in the palace, and we see a curious behavior Maybe a little bit of a sinful behavior begin to form in him. Now, as he remains behind, as all these wars are being fought, he gets bored. And he starts to roam his rooftop of his palace. And as he's doing so, in his boredom, he looks out and he becomes a peeping Tom. He catches sight of a beautiful woman, a married woman named Bathsheba, bathing on an, uh, on an opposite rooftop. 
And he begins to lust after her. He begins to desire her. And David's sin begins to snowball in some really destructive patterns. And he goes from being apathetic, as I slip and fall, as he goes from being apathetic to bored, to lazy, to lustful, he abuses his power. And he commands his soldiers to seek out Bathsheba and to bring her to him. And all of a sudden, David's sin is spiraling out of control. And David abuses his authority and his position and his power and his prestige, and he takes advantage of this poor woman, and he commits adultery with her. And we think that's the end. David thinks that's the end, but Bathsheba gets pregnant. And to make a long story short, the, through the course of his pregnancy, David finds out about this, hears of this. He knows that if he gets exposed in this, this could seriously undermine him. This could really harm his rule and his reign. And so David begins to pull strings. He begins to scheme. He brings in various accomplices. And long story short, he actually has this poor woman's husband, Uriah, killed in battle. While he is out fighting and dying and risking his life on behalf of David and David's kingdom, David has his fellow soldiers withdraw and retreat around Uriah, so he is struck down and killed by the enemy. It's a grade-A cover-up. It's a grade-A conspiracy and murder plot. And David thinks he's gotten away with it. And after Bathsheba grieves the death of her husband, she comes into her, uh, David's household, and he marries her, and they have a child. And a year goes by, and it looks like he's gotten away with it. It looks like he's totally uh, unexposed. And then God sends a man named Nathan, a prophet, who was really sort of a pastoral figure to David throughout his life. And Nathan shows up. And Nathan, this prophet, comes before David and tells a bold story. He tells this bold story of a really powerful, wealthy, rich man and a story of someone who's the exact opposite, very lowly, very humble, uh, lacking in station and power and influence, and how this rich man basically abuses and uses everything he has to take advantage of this poor, lowly man. And David, it says, burns with anger, right? Because it's very easy for us to see sin out there in others. It's more difficult for us to recognize it in ourselves. And David burns with anger, it says, and David shouts out, surely this man deserves to die for what he has done. And that's when Nathan pulls the rug out from under him. He says, David, it's you. David, it's you. It's, you're the man. You're the one who did this. And Nathan lists out all the things that David did, and he lists out the consequences. And David finds himself caught and exposed and vulnerable. And he's left with a choice of how he's going to react. Can he hide it anymore? doesn't seem like it. He can certainly try to rationalize it. He could try and blame others, but we see David do this fourth thing. We see him repent. And he says, I have sinned against God and I will face the consequences, but I am going to turn towards God in my most embarrassed, most ashamed of circumstances. And David writes, out of this terrible, tragic, sinful, broken relationship, series of relationships, he writes Psalm 51, one of, if not the most beautiful writings on repentance in all of scripture of people turning towards God with desperation. So we're going to look at the words that he wrote. So we're going to start the sermon now. Sound good? (laughs) Hang in there. Don't worry. We're not going to go too long. Uh, So we are going to take a look at Psalm 51. And we're going to see what David's uh, turning towards God looks like, what it looks like for the man after God's own heart to turn towards God in repentance when he's caught, when he's broken relationship. We're going to read the first couple of verses here. You can follow along on the screen behind me. Oh, I have the clicker. That's me. Uh, You can follow along on the screen behind me or in your Bibles. This is God's word to us and for us. He writes this, Have mercy on me, O God, 
according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions and cleanse me from my sin. Now let's just stop right there for a second. If you're anything like me, I, my gut reaction to what David is doing is, this is not the right way to repent. You're not going about it the way that I would, David. All this language, God, it's your mercy, it's your unfailing love, it's your great compassion. David, you're the king of Israel. You've done some great stuff. Again, I, I don't know, maybe if you're, uh, you might be a little different than me, but if it were me, and I were David, I would stand before God and I'd say, hey, okay, you caught me. Hey, you got me. Well done. Okay, you figured it out. Hey, I'm caught. I'm busted. Hey, I've done some pretty great stuff in my life, though. I've been a faithful servant of yours my whole life. I have a legacy, actually, of doing good things and following you. You know, remember Goliath? He was a bad dude. Man, no one would stand up to Goliath. No one had the courage or the trust in you to stand up to Goliath. Well, not no one. I guess I, guess I did. You know, that was pretty impressive, God, right? I mean, I'm not saying we should keep score, but if, if we were keeping score, I mean, that's like a touchdown, right, at least? I took out his army after that. Like, that's the two-point conversion. I'm, okay, right on caught. You're right. I've done some bad things. But, you know, Saul tried to kill me. The king before me, he did some terrible things, right? He tried to kill me not once but twice. And I let that go. I trusted you, God. I was faithful, even when it was difficult. Do you remember that? And here's the deal, God. I'm still the king, right? I've got influence. I've got power. I can do all sorts of great stuff for you. If you'll forgive me. Do you like temples? I can build temples. Do you like sacrifices? Hundreds, thousands of bulls and sheep I could sacrifice for you, God. I can, I've done all this great stuff in the past, and I could do all this great stuff in the future. That is so often how I approach turning towards God. That is so often how I approach him is this bargaining, negotiation relationship and say, God, look at the good stuff I've done in the past. Isn't that good? And look at the stuff I will do in the future. Can you relate to that at all? Look, God, I know I messed up. I know, but I'll never do it again. Never again. I'm, I'm going to go to church every week, and I'm going to read the Bible a hundred times, and I'm going to pray every single day. I'm going to fast. I'm going to do all sorts of stuff. If they take attendance at church, they'll know I don't miss for the next year. God, I can do all of that for you. And David, right out of the gate, in his psalm of reorientation, addresses his broken relationship by saying, all of that is just junk. It's bogus. There is nothing that he can do or I can do, or you can do, that can earn God's forgiveness, that can earn God's love. It is a work that God himself and God alone can do. And his words read loud and clearly this. God, it is your mercy. It is your unfailing love. It is your great compassion. That's the only thing that can cleanse me and heal me. And this is a super important truth for many of us today, is that Christianity is not a try-harder religion. Did you catch that? Christianity is not a try-harder religion. I'm busted, I'm found out, I'm caught, I'm embarrassed, I'm ashamed. I'll do better next time, God. I can, I can buckle down, I can figure this out. Just, just you know, forgive me, just take care of me. No, Christianity is not a try-harder religion. It is not about what I have done or what you can do. It is what Jesus did for us on the cross. And that is the only hope that anyone has for being saved, for seeing those broken relationships in us and around us being made whole. It's God's forgiveness and it's God's love. We are not pull ourselves up by the bootstraps kind of people that say, God, I can prove to you and I can do all things for us. God, Christianity is not a try-hard religion. David, the man after God's own heart, right away recognizes a core truth about true repentance. 
he recognizes this. True repentance recognizes how powerless we are to fix ourselves. Many of us have prayed a prayer that says, God, God save me from my sin. If you've prayed that prayer, that's a good prayer. Boy, you know the prayer I need a little bit more than that? God, save me from my religion. God, save me from my religion. Save me from the temptation and desire and the predisposition to proving myself before you because you know what? I will not do it. I cannot do it. Not by my works alone, but only by the work of Jesus on the cross. True repentance recognizes how powerless we are to fix ourselves. That's one insight into true repentance. We see David, he continues writing. Um, he, he addresses some of the things he's done right away, but he continues on. You can see what he writes in verse 5 next. Oh, I'm sorry. Verse 5, there we go. And he says this, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. David continues his psalm of repentance, his psalm of reorientation and seeing broken relationships made whole. And he writes really interesting words here. He says, surely I was sinful at birth. He steps back from what he's immediately done in the moment, and he actually looks deeper. He looks beyond himself. Now, these are words for us that make us a little bit uncomfortable. Because when I sin, when I, I'm uh, off course, I need reorientation, I kind of want to focus on the here and now. David shows us that true repentance isn't about having a being, or is about having a being problem, not about having a doing problem. David's problem isn't that he's done some bad stuff. He's saying, I am, I am like this. This is who I am. Now, this resonates with me because my problem as Joseph McCormick isn't that I occasionally lie and cheat and steal and lust and do bad things. My problem is that I'm naturally good at those things, right? I didn't have to go off to summer camp to figure out how to do those things. I'm just naturally good at it. And you know what? I think you are too. I think that every single one of us in our being has things that are broken between us and our relationship with God. When I was three years old, uh, I got an Etch-A-Sketch for Christmas. Great Christmas present. It was fantastic. Kids nowadays get like tablets and iPhones. That was my tablet as a three-year-old. I was very excited about that. And my sister, who's four years older than me, wanted to see what her little brother got for Christmas. And she comes over, and I don't even remember what she did exactly, but it bugged me. She came over, and she, I think she maybe poked at it or turned one of the knobs as I'm like squiggling away on my Etch-A-Sketch. And this look of just rage and frustration crossed my face, and I just turned and boom, just punched my sister right in the shoulder. Yeah, I, I was a troublemaker, right? Yeah, we already talked about this. Yeah, I was a troublemaker as a kid. Selective obedience. And here's the deal. I had never seen someone do that. I had never seen my dad hit my mom. I had never seen my mom hit my dad. My sister had never hit me before, but boy, I was really good at it. I was really good at hitting my sister, getting angry and frustrated and lashing out at her. My problem isn't that I just occasionally do bad things or maybe I hung out with the wrong crowd. My problem is I am the wrong crowd. And you know what's true? The scary thing is this is true for our children too. This is true for my child. My, my wife and I, Sheila, we have a little girl named Marin. She, we love her. She's amazing. God, she's sinful. She is. Like she, she's just naturally good at it. We say no to her all the time. We dropped her off at the nursery a few weeks back, and uh, we did that thing parents, you're really not supposed to do. We, don't, we shouldn't do but I, we were like, let's hover and watch. Like, let's see how she does with people. And so here's our beautiful little one-year-old angel of a girl, and she's sitting down. And she's playing with this little toy drum, just banging away on this little drum. It's super cute. And uh, Clara Mitchell 
who's another uh, little girl in the nursery. It just kind of plops down right next to Marin, and, and we, they, we see him playing. And we're like, oh, little girl has a friend. She's probably, you know, she's so influential. She's probably president one day. You know, you're starting to have those conversations. And we're talking, and we're laughing, and we're ooing and aahing. And we see Marin extend the drum to her new little playmate who's sitting right across from her. And we put our arms around each other. You're a great mom. You've raised her so well. No, you're a great dad. We, we've done a great job. Our little angel, she's so great. And as we're watching this, as we're, I, we literally did this. We were congratulating ourselves on what great parents we are. And as we're watching this, she extends this little drum over to this little girl across from her, and the same look of frustration and anger crosses her face as she takes that drum and she goes, No! And we go, oh, no, this is your fault, Mom. She got that from you. No, Dad, it's your fault. She's never seen us do that. We've never in anger snatched things away from each other or from her. It's like, no. She just picks up on it really easily, really quickly. Our problem isn't that we have a doing problem. It's that we have a being problem. We talk about uh, a phrase in our culture all the time. And I, and I, I don't want to undermine it too much because I appreciate the intentionality and the heart behind it. But that phrase is just be yourself. Ever, ever heard that phrase before? Just be yourself. Just be afraid. It's a good, it's an encouraging phrase. I, I get that. I get where the heart is. You know, don't, don't spend your life trying to be someone else. Just be yourself. The problem with the phrase just be yourself is this. What if you're not a good person? There are plenty of people I can name right now that I'm like, boy, I wish they would be a little bit like themselves. I wonder, when we say just be yourself, if we're actually settling, if we're falling a little short of what we could actually be. Because if you said, Joseph, just be yourself, or I said, just be yourself, and we have this service day coming up, you want to know how many people are going to show up? About four people. I'd be one of them. Because I don't, if I'm just being myself, I like to sleep in. I like to talk about service. I like to take pictures of myself when I'm serving, put them on Facebook, but I don't like to serve. I don't want to be out there. That's my day. I want to sleep in. I want to eat bacon. I want to do what I want to do. It's a Saturday. Just be yourself. I wonder, what if we weren't a just be yourself kind of church? Okay, just what could it look like if we were a church that actually said, we don't have a doing problem, we actually have a being problem, and we actually need to be a little bit more than just ourselves? What if we said we were a church that wanted to be like Jesus instead in how we welcome and how we serve and how we love and how we sacrifice? What if that actually was part of our being? And what if our prayer was like the one that David has in Psalm 51, verse 10? He says in this, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit in me. For some of you all here this morning, that needs to be our prayer this week. Maybe on a postcard, on your bathroom mirror, that we say, God, I don't have a pure heart on my own. It's not that I do bad things. It's maybe that there's actually bad desires and things in me that don't honor you. So God, I need you to come in. I need you to be the one that, do, that does this, that gives me a pure heart and renews a steadfast spirit in me so that I can do more than just settling for being myself, but I can be more like Jesus. What if we were a church that was a little more like Jesus and a little bit less like me or you? What could God do in us and through us if we were that kind of church? Make this your prayer this week. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Because my spirit's not steadfast, and my heart's certainly not pure on my own. One more little observation. This is a 
We're going to kind of actually close up with this. Psalm, Psalm 51 is really long. There's a ton of great insights in there. I would encourage you uh, to read it this week. Actually, make it a prayer of repentance for yourselves this week. Um, but we'll save the rest for another sermon another time. But I want to end with this. This is my favorite verse in Psalm 51. It's a little strange, right? You wouldn't think of this necessarily as being your favorite verse. There's a reason why. And it says this, Psalm 51, 7. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Now, David, he's, he's recognizing his sin. He's turned towards God. He's recognizing it's God's mercy. It's God's cleansing. We pick up on the cleansing language there right away, right? I will be clean. Uh, make me whiter than snow. Purge my sins away from me. There's this odd word in there, hyssop. What in the world is hyssop? Well, if you Googled it, it would be a little helpful. We'd find out that hyssop is a small white flower. It grows all throughout the Middle East, grows all throughout the Near East, and uh, even the South Mediterranean. It's a small white flower. So cleanse me with hyssop. Now, if you checked your Bible concordance, or if you were to look into where does this word appear, it appears just in a few places throughout the Bible, not a ton. But I think it's very significant the first place this word appears and the last place this word appears. You see, the very first place we see this word hyssop, this small white flower mentioned, is during the Passover. In Exodus 12, when God's people are enslaved, when they're prisoners, when they need a protector and a deliverer, when they need their God to show up in a powerful way, they're commanded to make a sacrifice of a lamb, Passover lamb, and to take a hyssop flower and to dip that flower in the blood and spread it over their doorways to mark them as God's people, as a reminder, as a sign and a seal of how much he loves them and will deliver them and protect them and forgive them. Right? God's not dumb. He knows what's happening next. He knows they're going to go into the desert. He knows they're going to rebel against them. But he says, here's a sign and a seal and a tangible reminder of the sacrifice and the beauty of my protection and deliverance for you. Use a hyssop branch to spread this over the doorway. That's the first place we see it in Scripture. Where do you think we see it? The last place. We see it at the cross. We see hyssop mentioned at the cross. We see the perfect, sinless Lamb of God, the Passover Lamb, Jesus Christ himself, on the cross, taking our sins, taking all of our broken relationships in the world, with each other, and with God, and taking those onto himself, and we see someone extending a hyssop branch to him and extending a sponge so he can, he can speak his final words, which were, it is finished. That's why I love this verse. That's why I love this psalm of repentance because it tells us a beautiful truth. True repentance recognizes just how much God loves us. True repentance, turning towards God in the midst of broken relationships, recognizes just how much God loves us. We see that on the cross. We see that in this meal right here. In the same way that God knew the Israelites were going to move out and they were going to rebel against him and doubt him and sin, and he said, I want to deliver them anyway. I want to save them anyway because they're my people and I love them and I want to watch over them and protect them. Jesus gathered for a meal with his disciples the night he was betrayed. Hours before his closest friends turned their backs on him, and denied him, rejected him. Hours before that, he gathered and had a meal with his friends. And he even said this. He said, no greater love does anyone have than this, than to lay down your life for your friend. And he invited them to the table, the Passover table, and he's there as the Passover lamb, the ultimate sacrifice for all the broken relationships and all the sin. And Jesus says, you're my friends, and I invite you here now. It doesn't matter what you have done, doesn't matter what you're about to do. It doesn't matter what you will do. 
I love you. True repentance shows us how much God loves us because it points us to Jesus. And we see that in this meal. There's an opportunity for us to be reminded here this morning how much God loves us right here in this meal. And when Jesus gathered with his disciples, he gave thanks and he took the bread, took the bread of the Passover and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, broken for you. When you do this, when you eat this, when you taste this, when you smell it, remember me. Remember me. Remember how much I love you. In the same way, he gave thanks and he took the cup of wine. And he poured the wine and he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. My blood shed for the forgiveness of sins, for the forgiveness of broken relationships, past, present, and future. When you drink this, remember, remember me and remember how much I love you. Now, there's only, there's only one thing that it takes for us to turn towards this table and to come to this table and to participate and be called Jesus' friend and to be forgiven, and that's faith in Jesus. That's it. No, no resume checks, no attendance checks, no giving checks. There's, there's nothing else, no, no scripture memorization checks. There's one thing that is asked of us to come to this table, and that is faith in Jesus as our Savior. So that's the invitation here for every single one of us today. Parents, you need to know what your children believe. You need to know, do, do they know this is more than just snack time in church, right? This is, this is a time for us to come together and celebrate and remember how much God loves us. That Jesus is with us wherever we go and whatever we do. So your children need to know that. If you're here with us and you're a guest today, and maybe you're not a follower of Jesus, I have two invitations for you. First, first off, I just want to say thank you for being here. Thank you. You're welcome here. We always want you to know that, and we always want you to believe that. You are welcome here. Thank you for joining us today. And as we participate in this meal, and you're wondering, oh, what in the world is my role here? There's an invitation for you. Follow Jesus. Every single one of us has been in that place where you are now, wondering, what in the world do I believe, and how do I deal with these broken relationships in me and around me? And the answer is Jesus. Many of us have come to put our faith in him and seen those broken things made beautiful. And there's an invitation right here right here today. No better day than today. You don't need to have all the answers figured out. You don't even need to stop asking questions. We talked about that last week. Questions can be beautiful things that lead us closer to God. But this is an invitation for you to say, I follow you, Jesus. Heart, soul, and mind, I'm yours. Let's figure this out together. And there's a second invitation. If you're not there, you're still wrestling with these questions, you're invited just to sit and reflect. As people get up here in a moment and begin to participate in this, there's no shame in that. In fact, there's, that's a good and holy and godly thing for us to do, to sit and to reflect about our relationship with God. To ask, to ask ourselves this question, what if today's not an accident? What if the God of the universe actually has me here today for a reason? What if God is doing something right now to fix these broken relationships in my life? I encourage you to pray, to reflect on that. Now, church family, we're going we're gonna to do this. Or you guys can do this, right? Communion is always a little haphazard here. Uh, I've seen you guys sing. I've seen you guys clap. I've seen you guys do all, uh, sing and clap at the same time, so I know you can figure out communion. So this is how we're going to do it. In just a few minutes, I know it's a big service with all of us here uh, in the summertime, but uh, we're going to have two stations for each section. So six stations total, two stations for this section over here, two for here, and two over here. 
And everyone, when I, after I pray for us and uh, those who are ready to serve are in place, you're going to stand up and you, everyone's going to move to your left. You got that? Everyone to your left. And so this section, you're going to have a station over there in the far corner and one right here. You just move to your left. And if one station is taken, you just can move right on past. You're going to come up. You're going to take a piece of bread and you're going to dip it in the cup with the bracelet, which is wine, or the cup without, which is grape juice. If you are gluten-free, we also have some gluten-free wafers and juice up here. So you can help yourself to that. And so you're going to come forward, you're going to participate, and you're going to come back and loop back to your seats the other way. So this section right here, we're going to have stations uh, right here and right here, and you're going to come forward and work your way around. And this section is a little more complicated. You guys, your stations are a little more recessed off the side, but everyone's still going to move to their left and circle back. We can do this. I believe in us. (laughs) But here's the good news. We worship a God who loves to take broken relationships and make them beautiful. We worship a God who loves us so much that he was broken so that we could be made whole. And that's what this meal reminds us of. That's what we get to feast on and celebrate this morning. So I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to invite those who are serving to come forward. So bow your heads with me as I pray. Father, the fact that we can even call out to you as our Heavenly Father, as the one who loves us, who sacrificed for us, who restores and renews broken relationships. God, we praise you, we worship you, we thank you. God, I thank you. I know it's not because of what I've done in the past, what I do now, what I will do in the future, because Lord, in fact, uh, that ought to separate me from you. But it doesn't because of the good news of the cross, because of the good news of the gospel, because of who you are and what you're doing in us and through us today. So God, I pray for this congregation. I pray that we would be a congregation marked with true repentance turning towards you and trusting you and hoping in you, recognizing, God, that we don't just have sin in our lives. Lord, we are sinful, and we need new hearts and a new spirit. But the good news is you answer those prayers when we come to you in faith. So, God, thank you for this meal that reminds us of that. Thank you that you are so patient with us because we need constant reminders. So, Lord, bless us and keep us as we feast on you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.